25 years ago, on March 15, 1998, the Miami Fusion kicked off their opening game in MLS's third season, becoming one of the two expansion teams in this ever-growing professional league. While the Chicago Fire would win the U.S. Open and MLS Cup double in that 1998 season, getting all the attention in the process, the Fusion would quietly grind, grow, and build over the next few years until finally putting forth a dominant Supporter Shield winning season in 2001. This team, led by Ray Hudson, played fast, loose, and exciting soccer. Alex Pineda-Chicon, Pablo Mastroeni, and Nick Romando were just some of the memorable names on this roster. This progressive playing squad was bested only by a young Landon Donovan and his San Jose Earthquakes in the Major League Soccer playoffs that year. Despite putting together one of the best seasons in MLS history at that point and arguably since, MLS made the decision to fold both the Fusion and their Florida neighbors, MLS original franchise, Tampa Bay Mutiny. While MLS soccer has returned to Miami in the form of David Beckham's Inter-Miami, much has been discussed of what could have been had the Miami Fusion been allowed to stay and build. Indeed, what would a Miami Fusion look like in 2023? This podcast tells the story of the Miami Fusion through the voices of those who actually lived it. 25 interviews across 25 episodes charting the good, the bad, and the unbelievable. My name is Joe Shaw, and this is 25 for 25, the story of the Miami Fusion from those who lived it a detox production. Join us all season long as we explore this unique slice of American sports history. This is a great sports event. This is the best ticket money can buy in South Florida. And it rocks, it absolutely rocks. What do you do when you get hired two months before the start of a professional season for a team that has never existed before in a league that is only in its third season? And oh yeah, you've got to rebuild, retrofit a stadium to fit what you need all in the span of a couple of months. That was the situation that Gabe Gabor found himself in when he got hired to do PR media relations for the Miami Fusion. He did not have a team. He had to hire a team. There was not a media guide. He had to write the media guide. There were so many all-nighters that Gabe pulled to ensure that the Miami Fusion went off without a hitch for that opening game, March 15, 1998. Well, there were a few hitches along the way, and Gabe gets into those stories on today's episode. On 25 for 25, the story of the Miami Fusion from those who lived it, we do chart the good, the bad, and the unbelievable stories. And this episode with Gabe definitely covers most of the unbelievable stories that you haven't heard about the Miami Fusion. In chapter six, let me set the record straight. Gabe dives into some of the lesser known or in most cases, not known stories about the Miami Fusion and helps to set the record straight about how and why the Miami Fusion were contracted in the first place. It's an absolutely incredible story. One quick thing before we start the episode, uh, later on in the episode, Gabe makes a reference that uh, Miami and Tampa Bay were league-owned teams, and it's actually, it was the Tampa Bay Mutiny and the Dallas Burn were the league-owned teams. Ken Horowitz was the owner of the Miami Fusion. So just putting that in there and uh, go ahead and enjoy 
chapter six, let me set the record straight. Let's do this. Let me hear how you first, because the, the fusion was what, was that your first sort of big job in within media, within sports? How did you, how did you come to get the job with the fusion? Nepotism. <laughs> <laughs> Now, so, you know, I, I had a, you know, I, I didn't join the fusion till I was uh, 30 years old, which right now seems very, very young to me, but back then seemed very old to me. Sure. And um, I was actually an established PR executive. I was in the airline business. I was head of communications for Carnival Airlines. It was um, owned by the owner of Carnival Cruise Lines. And at one point they, um, they were sold to Pan Am. Pan Am had its own PR person, so we couldn't have two heads of PR. So they made me head of promotion, and I wasn't, um, I didn't like the idea of not being the head guy. You know, I was a little cocky for 30 years old. <laughs> um, so right around the same time, my um, my best friend, Mark Russo, an attorney, uh, was getting into the business of buying and selling players. And they were working on a deal to bring Jerry Tamashiro to to um, the Miami Fusion, Jerry Tamashiro, who ended up being the first international player for Miami. And in conversations with the general manager at the time, Leo Stilitano, uh, Leo mentioned that they haven't hired a PR executive yet. And Mark was like, I got the perfect guy for you. <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, I think he sent this resume. You didn't reply to him. And he was like, what? And uh, sure enough, uh, the next thing I know, Leo's calling me and asking me if I'd be interested in the job. We interview over the phone. He goes, you're the guy. You're the guy I want. Come in for an interview with the owners uh, as a formality, but I'm telling you, you're the guy. You got it. And that was it. That was the start of three and a half years at uh, Miami Fusion. Now, what's interesting is that nowadays when they launch an MLS team, you, you have a, a long runway, yeah. a year, two years. Back then, I was hired to start January 4th, and you know the franchise started in March. So imagine having two, two and a half months to put together a PR program, hire my staff, put together a media guide, which is for anybody who works in our industry, it's a nightmare of information to get right. Um, launch was, was essentially a new re, uh, revised renovated Lockhart Stadium yep, um, and be an expansion team and do all that in a month and a half. Nowadays, <laughs> they hire a PR person or PR team a year in advance. Right. I had no time, which is why I ended up, and this is the truth, spending a couple of, um, pulling a couple of all-nighters at the office because uh, there was just not enough time. And I remember specifically, I couldn't sleep. I would try to lay down and there was so much to do to launch the team. And mind you, I didn't come from sports. Right. So I was learning as I went along. Uh, there was so much to do that I literally could not sleep. I would lay awake all night thinking about all the things I needed to do in the morning. Um, and it was probably professionally the hardest month and a half, two months of my career was getting the um, uh, Miami Fusion off the ground. It's, but it changed my life because yeah. I've been in sports for for 25 years now. So, and you know, through the sport in a way I met my wife, which means I have my family yep. and um, you know, my, my life is all based on that one move to Miami fusion. So I couldn't be more thankful. Yeah. You know, you brought up Lockhart stadium and I think that's something that not a lot of folks are aware of, right? So the, 
the Ken Horowitz, the owner, uh, was originally going to be in the the team was originally going to play out of the Orange Bowl, and then the city wanted a ten year lease. Right. Ken wants something a little bit more flexible, which is understandable. It's a new league. It's a new team. Not even sure if this is going to work. Um, and so the decision is made to renovate uh, Lockhart Stadium to make it to increase the capacity to 20,000 um, and and really have that first soccer specific eye towards a stadium. And then obviously it wasn't built specifically for that purpose initially. That came with Columbus in 99. But with Lockhart Stadium being that first one to really retrofit an environment to be soccer specific. So all of that's going on uh, as all of well, that is going on. as well and I don't as think what you're till, doing. Yeah. I don't think till today Lockhart and Ken Horowitz get the credit that they deserve. Everyone yeah. talks about the Columbus crew stadium as being right. the first soccer specific, but the truth is that the first stadium in the league that was basically retrofitted and made specifically for soccer was Lockhart stadium, which right. had an incredible history uh, due to all those legendary times with the Fort Lauderdale Strikers and the Cosmos coming in and the Diplomats and all those old NASL teams, which I went to as a kid. When I came uh, to the United States from Argentina, where I'm from originally, as a 10-year-old in 77, I was craving soccer, and I convinced my dad to take me to go see Ray Hudson, uh, Thomas Rung, and uh, you know, all those legendary guys, right. Cruyff that came in, Pelé that came in. Um, Ernie Mauser, uh, Tofio Cubillas, and it, it's just unbelievable to me that years later I'd get to work with a lot of these uh, incredible stars. It was, it was for me, it was a dream come true to get that job, even though yeah. I had a cushy gig at an airline, was a, a dream come true. Uh, to think that there were some guys that I watched playing in a world cup, and a couple of years later I'm working with them and sharing a meal with them was an unbelievable thing. But yeah, back to Lockhart Stadium, it's it was um, back then it was revolutionary, but it was also done um, in a very interesting way. And what I mean by that is that you take an old high school stadium that has no infrastructure, you have to build infrastructure. And one of the things they had to do is build the stands on the east and west side. And basically it's those stands that sort of look like an erector set. Right. Um, and this is a true story. They were running late the day before. They weren't sure if they were going to finish the stands and get uh, operational approval on time. So wait before sure before this, that first yeah. game before like the before the first game DC? ever okay. against DC United that we lost two nothing yep. on ABC on national TV on March fifteenth, so, nineteen ninety eight, twenty five years ago. That's right, twenty five years ago. So the day before, the night before, the 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 company I was putting the stadium together apparently went out and I guess there's still like, you know, you go to Home Depot or whatever and you just ask people, hey, you know, do you need work? And they hired like dozens of people the night before to just finish wrenching together Lackard Stadium. So the next morning, one of the first to show up in the press box uh, was myself with the MLS PR team to get the press box ready to go to launch the team. And we walk in and there's all these people sleeping in the press box. Oh and it was God. the people that they hired to finalize, you know, putting the stands together the night before. So we kind of I'm like, hey, guys, thank you. Now get up and go. We got to get the press box ready. <laughs> um, now, it was it was the structure was interesting. Even the broadcast booth was actually a trailer like uh you know like yeah. a trailer right and they, they used uh, like three weeks before or a month before the start of the season. They literally used a helicopter and cranes to lower 
the trailer, the, the broadcast booth trailer onto the top of a structure that had built on top of the south side to build the press box. <laughs> this is what the press box was. So people talk about MLS 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, what are we up to? 5.0. Whatever. This yeah. was one this was before, <laughs> if 1.0 is Columbus, this was before that. I mean, right. it's um yeah, it was uh it was amazing. And then I was pitching it like this great new facility because Ken Horowitz had to spend millions of dollars on this. Yeah. So I would do media tours and show media how it's coming along, much like you would a, a you know, a, a half a billion, you know, half a billion dollar stadium. I was and I was very proud of Lockhart Stadium. And I actually thought there wasn't a bad seat and it was a great place to watch soccer. But how it came about. Interesting, interesting stuff. Yeah. Well, I think what's really cool when you look at some of the old clips of people at Lockhart Stadium watching the action, you really are kind of right on top of it. You do feel that intimacy and you do get to see um, the, a unique environment. I mean, I mentioned before, like I'm from Dallas and so going to see the games of the Cotton Bowl, you're so far away from all the action. And even even when you're right there at the first seat, first row, I remember uh, Dallas played a preseason match against Cruz Azul and we were right there on the front and it still felt like we were a world away from the action. But Lockhart yeah, and Stadium, a lot of those old right stadiums there. had the track around it, right. you know, because uh, or or had um um, it was a football stadium that, that had a, a, an NFL or, or college football like Columbus, and it had a track around it, so the fans were kind of far away. But here in Lockhart, it's, it's your, your feet away. Yeah. So it was a great place to watch. It wasn't what I would call modern or state-of-the-art, <laughs> but it was a great place to watch. You know, it's, it, Listen, the, the proximity to the fans is great, and in some cases not so great. One example is one night we, um, we lost the game, and one of the members of the aficionados that were, you know, our main supporters group, he was not happy that we lost the game, came up to the press box. Basically, there's very little security to speak of. So he just walked right up the stairs, walked into the press box, was so annoyed by losing that he slapped me. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, it, that's a true story. Um, and, and they're all true stories, by the way. Because you, you can't make this stuff up. No. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. And... Um, yeah, so it was it, it was cozy, and you know we had this family atmosphere because after the game we had that makeshift club made out of a tent okay. on the northwest side, and we did a live radio show afterwards with the coach in the tent, and then the players would come in and they would mingle with their families and with the uh, with the fans that had paid for the better seats. You know, we had some semblance of a, a club section in the middle, and we had some PGA style makeshift suites on either side. So those fans were going to the club and, and there was, a, there was a, a lot of proxy. A lot of the players knew a lot of the fans and it was, it was in many ways like a family. Sometimes when you think back on it, it's hard to believe that the team lasted four seasons because yeah. you talk about it as if it was a, you know, a legacy here in South Florida. And it was just four seasons and correct me if I'm wrong, but inner Miami's in its fourth season now, I think fourth or fifth. So that means that, yeah. you know, Miami has, lasted as long as the Miami fusion and already. And to me, it's a brand new team. You know, I, I think that's so that's one thing that I've heard from everyone um, is the fact that there was this family dynamic atmosphere throughout the duration of the, of the season, whether you were a supporter, whether you were on staff, whether you were a coach or a player. Um, Jim Rooney has talked about this numerous times that every, Everybody was family. I mean, you're here, yep. 
um, you know, <laughs> it's not the Olive Garden. You're here, your family. It's the fusion, right? When you hear your family, right. and and um, but it uh, just the ability to have that type of culture, I think, is is difficult for is difficult for maybe maybe not necessarily MLS, but definitely other sports leagues in America. It's hard to imagine that type of atmosphere because there's such distance between the team and and the the staff and the fans. Um, Early MLS, it really what you talked about the lack of security. I remember being at the Cotton Bowl, and it's just like uh, we're just here, like we're just here. We're with the players, we're hanging out, we're talking, we're going out. I mean, it's a little bit different, but but it really was like no, this is kind of you know we're figuring this out as we go along, and we're welcoming everybody to the party, um, which is which is unique. I want to talk about you know we talked about the. Um, the formation of Lockhart Stadium, the beginnings of that first season. Um, Carlos Valderrama was the premier player for the Miami Fusion for 98 and then for a cup of coffee in 99 before going back to Tampa right. Bay. Um, but you, you you mentioned to me offline that you picked him up from the airport. So tell me about what an experience that was. <laughs> you know, um, Everyone knew in the soccer world that Valderrama was going to come play for the Miami Fusion. He was with Tampa and the league at that time. Uh, I'm not sure how it worked out, but, you know, they arranged for him to be part of the the inaugural Miami Fusion team. Uh, by the way, I'm still friends with Carlos and his wife, Elvira. I, I saw him recently at a party. Um, he still has his curls, a little grayer, but he still has his <laughs> curls. And uh, he's as happy as can be. Because as a player, he wasn't a happy guy. He was kind of a moody guy. Yeah. Even though I got to tell you, till today, I've never seen a guy who can pass the ball like Carlos Valderrama. Mm -hmm. They said he had eyes in the back of his head, and I truly believe that. The, the remarkable passes that he would feed to guys like Diego Serna were unbelievable. But yes, um, so our general manager at the time, Leo Stilitano, comes up to me at lunchtime, says, Gabe, can you go pick up Carlos Valderrama? Now, mind you, today, MLS, you know, it's corporate America, and if you have a big star player, you do a big to-do at the airport, you pick him up with a, with a limo or an SUV, you do a big show, the president shows up, shakes hands, et cetera. But back then, 1998, hey, Gabe, PR guy, Go pick up uh, Carlos Valderrama at Fort Lauderdale International. Sorry, Leo, I can't. What do you mean you can't? Why not? I don't have my car with me. I don't know why, what it was. And I'm not even sure if it was that I don't have my car with me or I, I had my car with me and I was driving a little convertible. It was a BMW Z3. And it was just too small for luggage. You sure. couldn't fit in it. So I'm like, I can't. He goes, oh, well, what do we do? I was counting on you. I'm like, I don't know. How about your car? No, he says, my car's in the shop. I go, I, or I have a meeting or something. At the end of the day, I was the only one that could go get him. Yeah. Out of the, you know, literally go now, go get him. That's the only information I got. The flight number of Valderrama's coming. So my only solution is to ask one of my interns if they have their car there. And I would go pick up, and that's how we'd go pick up Valderrama for Lauderdale. She drove like a little Toyota Corolla. <laughs> and not a new one, a beat up used Toyota Corolla. Now, this is before Uber right. or anything so you can't just call and have a car right now. So I'm like, that's what I got. Let's go. So her and I, and she's like 19-year-old college student, right? Her and I get in the car, um, and we head to Fort Lauderdale Airport, and I'm waiting for Valderrama with her. You know, I got my, my uh, Fusion polo shirt, and I'm, you know, looking all official and everything. 
So here comes Valderrama from the plane, very recognizable, obviously. But he's not alone. He's never alone, by the way. Right. He always has an He's with his wife, and I believe at the time he was with his two kids. And more luggage than you could imagine. I'm with a little Toyota Corolla and another person. What the hell do I do? So it's true. We stuffed as much luggage as we could in the trunk of this Toyota Corolla. I don't even know if it's a four-seater. It might have even been a two-seater. Oh, my God. Stuffed Valderrama and his wife with two kids on their lap and luggage on top of them and me. And that's how we took them back to the office on Commercial Boulevard. And that's... <laughs> That's that's how the story of the you know the 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 you know the most famous player in the history of of Miami Fusion got to the office the first time and uh, in the back of a beat up Toyota Corolla that was owned by my intern. This is the kind of stuff you can only get on twenty five for twenty five because I mean these are the stories of the Miami Fusion that people don't know. I mean this is incredible. John Trask told a story about he went to go pick up Precky in in two thousand because because you know. You did. That's what you do. Like who? Who's available? Who's got a car? Go pick up the superstar, right? Yeah. Like today, to your point, it's a to do. It's a it's a big thing. We've got appropriate accommodations. No, like just just go pick them. I mean, think about it. I was, uh, you know, obviously I I work for the league, and Orlando asked me to come in and help with the arrival of Kaká. And we were there. There was hundreds of fans. We worked with the airport. There were barricades on each side. We had a. Uh, SUV waiting for him, TV cameras live and all that. That's where we were at five years ago. Right. So 25 years ago, it's Gabe and the intern picking up Valderrama with no fanfare and nothing. It was uh, surreal and still surreal. I'm not even sure if if um, if Biba remembers that story. I should remind him next time I see him. <laughs> I remember on the on that on that thread, and I've got another question I want to ask you about a different story but on that thread I remember uh as a kid when FC Dallas picked up Carlos Ruiz for um allocation to LA which ended up being Donovan right um and I remember that trade happened the day before the first game and somebody uh Saffer had picked up Ruiz from the airport and brought him to the Cotton Bowl and he hops out like fresh from the airport throws on a kit and is in the starting lineup that like an hour later. And it really was just like, who's available. Ruiz is at the airport right now. Go get him. We, he's starting tonight. You gotta, you got I mean, that's, that's, that's MLS. I mean, that that's in some of those earlier years. Right. And, um, it's, it's just why I, I love those stories. Um, I want to talk about, um, what were some of the, uh, you know, you mentioned before that you did like kind of crazy, crazy stunts to sell to sell tickets uh, to get people to the fusion game. Let's talk. About, I want to know what was that opening game like, and then I want to get into some of the different ways that uh, you had sold tickets uh, or gotten people to to come to the games. Yeah, well, opening day was a big deal. We actually sold out in advance, twenty thousand seats. Uh, we were on national TV on ABC. Uh, uh, Phil Shane and and uh, Ty Keel yep. um, with um, commentators, but there was TV from all over the world. I remember the BBC being here. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, media from Latin America, from Colombia, Caracol. They were all um, they were all here. It was a big deal. It was important for the league to get this right. It was the launch of an expansion team. We're playing the defending champs, DC United. It was uh, it was a big deal, and it was uh, I was I mentioned before how it was the hardest time of my life that month and a half leading up to the launch of the team or two and a half months 
uh, it was all also the proudest accomplishment of my career, even with all the stuff I've done since then and working with, with uh, Barcelona and Manchester United and Messi and working with FIFA and all that, launching that stadium and doing that first game against DC United that we sadly lost 2-0 mm-hmm. since, thanks to goals by Tony Sané and Richie Williams. I yeah. don't think, I, I told them I'll never forgive them for that. But, uh, <laughs> but um, that was exciting. And you felt, oh, this is it. This is here to stay. The problem is that as an organization, we were so focused on game one. And the hardest game to sell when you open up a franchise is not game one. It's game two when right. the buzz is gone. And game two, we're playing New England. And there was a drop of attendance of, of like 5,000 people. And uh, it was, uh, now we're like, uh-oh, we got to sell the club. But that first game was magic. I believe somewhere I still have a VHS of it. And um, which maybe I, at some point I, tra- I uh, transferred to, to uh, DVD. Uh, but it was, uh, it was magic. Uh, it was um, historic. Uh, and um, it, uh, it was the start of my sports career. So, you know, I'll always think very fondly of that game. The, that first year, you know, so I think what's interesting too, that first year was a bit up and down. Uh, Miami ended up for awareness. Miami, Miami made the playoffs three out of four years. The only year they didn't was 2000, but they made it to the finals, of the U S open cup, which we'll get into right. in a bit. Um, but also the league was, was fairly generous with the playoffs, right? So there were 12 teams at this point. And so 10, 10 out of, tw- no, eight out of 12 teams made the playoffs. I believe I might have that incorrect. Um, but a fair amount of the teams made the playoffs. So it was, it was you had some room for error to, to get in, right? So you could kind of have a bit of a slow start and still make it. Um, and actually just, sorry, Joe, you yeah. just reminded me of, a. Uh... Of something I had totally forgotten. Uh, the last game of the season, 1998, uh, the the Fusion was playing at DC at the Great RFK, um, which back then, by the way, was to me was like a palace. You know, it was right. it was it was great. Um, and another game was going on, and somebody I forgot who, but someone had to lose, and we had to win by X number of goals or something like that in order for us to make the playoffs the first year. And the coach and the assistant coaches asked me, they didn't want to know what the score of the other game was. They didn't want to jade the players. They just wanted to play. So when the game was over, I was always down on the pitch because we had TV interviews and I knew that the other team had lost and we were in the playoffs. So this game is over and everybody's kind of moping around. And then I run out in the field and I tell Nikki Megalewis, Nikki, we're in, you know, XOZ. And then all of a sudden you see the celebration start on the field. But I had forgotten that I was the guy that went down on the field and actually told the coaches that we're that we're in, and then they told the players, and it was a big celebration. Yeah, D- DC, um, big 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 moment for the club in uh, 1998. That is wild. So talk about so what were some of the craziest stunts that you did to sell tickets throughout your time with the Fusion? All right. So one of the reasons I got hired is because I had this reputation for being sort of a PT Barnum. Uh, of PR and coming up with wild ideas, which uh, I was fortunate to execute at the airline. Um, and I, I have been doing with the league for the past uh, 18 years that I've been there with MLS. Uh, but from time to time, you know, that there were, there were games that were sort of duds, you know, there were Wednesday nights sure. and um, the opponent wasn't great or whatever it would be. So two that come to mind, um, one of them was we we're playing Kansas city. Kansas city wasn't exactly, 
the stars of the show back then. It right. was a Wednesday night. So we were trying to come up with ideas how to promote the game. And I came up with this crazy idea uh, called KC Dollar Night. Now, what did that mean? We basically put out a press release and said that anyone who presents at the box office and a dollar bill or any bill with KC and the serial numbers, the, the letters K and C and the serial number, got into the game for free. Um, it was a success. We had like, I, I don't remember exactly, but I think like 50 people, you know, used it, maybe less, but it was a cool promotion and people talked about it in the media. But to me, one of my career highlights is that Ken Horowitz called me and told me that, um, that Lamar Hunt, owner of Kansas City, called him because he was curious about the idea and how it went because he thought it was so creative. Wow. So then Ken tells me, and I'm like, whoa, I mean, this is the guy that invented the term Super Bowl. Right. So he's a PT barman. He's thinking <laughs> that my idea is fun. Uh, but yeah, so anybody, you know, so I had people all over town looking at the dollar bills, see if they had a KC <laughs> so they could get it for a buck. Um, another one of those was we had a Wednesday night, I think it was a Wednesday night game or something like that, where we're playing the Metro Stars, and it was the first ever game for their new big uh, hire, Lothar Mateus. Oh, Lothar yes. Mateus. Yes. I don't have to tell you what that mean means yep. even today in German soccer. So... I actually emceed and ran the news conference the day before the match, you know, after they landed here in South Florida. Uh, but going back to ticket sales, they're like, what are we going to do? We need to promote this. You know, we can't have an empty crowd for Lothar Mateus' debut right. in MLS. So I came up with this crazy idea called Free Lothar Night. Basically, if your first or last name is Lothar, you show your idea at the box office, you get in for free. <laughs> And so it's like, are we going to get any? Who the hell's named Lothar? In my <laughs> so I asked the box office manager to please let me know if any Lothar show up. And by the grace of God, I get a call on the radio. Gabe, we have a Lothar. Turns out that this German guy living in South Florida read about the promotion in the paper, showed up. I was so excited. We got a picture together. I sent it to Soccer America, and then the next uh, issue, which back then, by the way, was like, you know, the leading word on soccer in this right. country. Um, and the next day, and I still have it, there's a black and white picture, big, of, of me and this guy Lothar by the box office and me handing him the tickets. And, um, yeah, so that was the sort of stuff that we, we try to do. But we would do a lot of appearances in the community. We had this wonderful um, uh, woman named Donna Cardoza who was uh, sort of like the godmother of all the players. And um, she was terrific at, you know, taking in all the charitable requests and uh, doing the community appearances and things like that. And she worked alongside Ray Hudson, who the first year uh, not only was our um, television commentator, uh, which I had the, the pleasure and the honor of hiring for what I think is his first full-time TV gig. Yeah. And uh, we could talk about that differently because I didn't want to hire Ray, <laughs> by the way. I don't even know Ray knows this, but I'll tell you why in a second. Yeah. But, um, but Don and Ray did a great job in the community. Uh, and uh, a lot of those fans that we got in the first year was because of what we did out in the, out in the community. That's incredible. But uh, quickly, if you want me to touch on Ray Hudson. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So why, why, Hudson, did, why didn't you want to hire him? Well, you know, so here I am starting out. I have a month and I have two months to get the team together and I need to hire the TV talent. That was part of my responsibility. So the first thing I did is I hired uh, Phil Shane to be our local TV guy. I thought it was um, uh, a real 
uh, stroke of luck that the guy that does national TV also is here in South Florida. He was a radio personality for WQAM, had and continues to have the best voice in sports. I believe now he's doing a voiceover work in addition to his work uh, still on, on TV. But he is a, a sweetheart of a guy, an incredibly talented guy. First thing I did is I hired him to do our local games. So now I had to hire a color commentator, which wasn't easy. And uh, back then, the columnist for the Sun Sentinel, the soccer columnist, Jeff Rusnak, uh, said, you got to hire Ray Hudson. And I'm like, Ray Hudson, Ray Hudson, like player. I go, I love Ray Hudson. I just can't understand a word he's saying. Now, don't forget, you know, I came from Argentina when I was 10 years old. Sure. And, you know, I still had this mentality that, I can't understand this guy. And I don't know if he's will be great for the Latin market. And there's a lot of Latinos here where I'm going to go to this game. Sure. So I loved him. But remember, there was no um, history of him being on TV and, and being a wordsmith like he is. So I didn't know that part. Right. There was no tape that I could refer to. So I just strictly went on. Yeah, he's, he's probably the biggest soccer name in town. But I don't know if people are going to be able to understand them. And Rusnak... Uh, Jeff convinced me that Gabe, you will not be sorry. Try him out for a game. He is absolutely exceptional, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I met with Ray. And by the way, do you remember what Ray Hudson was doing before he got hired by the Miami Fusion? No, to what, do? what was he doing? He had a pool cleaning business <laughs> and he was coaching the Hollywood Wildcats under 12 girls team wow. on the side. And by the way, that was the, the only coaching game he had had before he became the coach of the Miami Fusion. But there's something infectious about Ray Hudson. Yeah, He is an incredible human being. You just can't help by, but love him. And it took me five minutes after talking to him on the phone to decide, oh, yeah, this is my guy. I got to get him on TV. And little did I know that 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 decision to put him on TV would turn him into the legend that he is today on television. Yeah. And I can't imagine watching Messi games, you know, in La Liga at the time now, with, you know, the PSG games without Ray talking about, you know, you know, you know, he deserves a medal the size of a frying pan, you right. know, and, and things like that yeah but yeah so i i got it wrong and and i would like to publicly apologize to ray if he's listening um my good friend ray for not knowing being naive to the fact that he was amazing and he was but i'm glad at the end of the day i made the right decision so thank you jeff for pushing me in that direction it's uh it's it's one of my proudest moments was was uh bringing ray on along with phil to do games that that story is incredible because that's <laughs> I think that's really helpful context for people to remember because yes today we think of Ray and and how incredible of a broadcaster he is that didn't exist there was no like you said there was no tape to reference and then from a coaching perspective like you said he was coaching you know a youth team prior to coaching an MLS franchise uh for for a couple of seasons and then and then DC for a few years and then boom that's it right it's 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 really incredible we talk about this like especially you talk about the fusion right it's four years and I did confirm this is Inter Miami's fourth season so yes four years and four years um uh, right. nice parallel um 
but we do talk about this as if it's been decades, decades of, of history, decades of, of all kinds of stories. And it's just four years. Like all of this yep. incredible uh, moments happened in, in just four years. Now, I want to talk about what was um, – you, you had mentioned – well, let, let's maybe do this, right? So you had talked about um, some of those midweek games. And, and also we know maybe in the – I remember specifically weekend – in the summer in Dallas, noon or one o'clock games, triple right. digits, sweltering hot. Jim Rooney told a story about feeling the leather boots on his feet, burning his feet because of how yep. hot it was. Um, so what was you were telling us or telling me before we started recording about uh, a player kind of uh, getting yes. getting a bit exhausted. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Everything you're saying is true. So back in 98, uh, 99, FC Dallas played at the Cotton Bowl. Now, I don't have to tell you how hot it is in Dallas in the summer, but Oof. it's well over 100 degrees. Now, the Cotton Bowl, when you see it from the outside, doesn't look towering because the truth is that it's built into the ground. Right. So not only is it as hot as it is at ground level, you go below ground, it's even hotter. And these poor guys had to play 1 p.m. games on a Sunday to accommodate television. And I have now after a game, my job as a PR person is to go into the locker room, grab the coach, take him to the news conference, and then open up the locker room for locker room access for the media. So I remember the game was over. I was on the field because we had to do post game interviews. Mm -hmm. And then I walk up that ramp to the locker rooms. Unfortunately, there, the locker rooms were at ground level. So you had to walk up this long, 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 steep ramp to get basically to the edge of the end zone entrance of the stadium. And that's where the locker rooms were. And I remember I didn't play. I'm 30, so I'm in decent shape. I couldn't breathe when I got to the top of the ramp. Imagine these guys that just played 90 minutes plus. So I remember going into the locker room to get at the time, I think it was already Evo, maybe it was Kacha Cordova. And I see Clay Coyman and maybe a couple of other players. Clay was our central defender. Big guy, you know, a World Cup player in 94, played captain for Cruz Azul. As good a shape as any human being that you've ever seen. He's laid out on the carpet or the floor of the locker room with an oxygen mask. Mm. They just couldn't breathe anymore. It was that hard to play. And, and people just don't know that. And uh, I, he wasn't the only one. There were others, but the whole team was spent. And then, you know, I'm the, I'm the jerk that walks in there and says, okay, guys, 15 minutes opening the locker room up. And they looked at me like, you know, they were going to kill me. <laughs> And they should have killed me. You know, we didn't have that much media that traveled with us. So it wasn't like there was a plethora of media, but a lot of media wanted to come in, especially because we had some star players. But that's how hot it was Sunday at the Cotton Bowl at one o'clock in the afternoon. I think it's important to point out for folks that in the early days of the league, there really was a lot of let's accommodate what the TV companies want to do because we want the exposure, we want the coverage, we want the ability to promote the league so more people come and more people get invested in the league. Um, and then it's really comforting to see how the, how that's changed over the years. Well, and, especially one of the reasons right. that we entered into an arrangement with Apple, you know, it's $10 million deal, 108 countries, 
is that we have our time slot. It's Saturday night, 7.30, no matter where you are in the country. Yep. Um, and except for the game that gets shown on uh, Fox, which is a little bit of a different time, everyone knows that that's when it is. Now, we do still have some Wednesday night games, uh, but the vast majority of matches are on Apple. And by the way, since I do work for MLS, I'll give it a little plug. If you haven't signed up yet for MLS Season Pass, please do so. And by the way, there's a lot of games that are in front of the paywall. So just go to Apple and it's available everywhere. Yep. Anywhere you go, it's the we are the most accessible league in the world right now. You literally yep. can pick up your phone, your laptop, any smart TV, Roku, Fire Stick, uh, obviously Apple TV, etc. Um, download the Apple app and uh, watch MLS games in 108 countries. Uh, unprecedented, never been done in the history of sports, and by far the most accessible sports league in the world. I've got my, yeah. I've got my MLS season well, pass, and I utilize it all the time. No, I, I love it. And what I've, I, I will just kind of add on to it for a little bit of plug from a user perspective. I love the ability. I, I, I watch all the Dallas games, right, every single week. And then I love the ability to go in and watch the the, re the condensed recaps of all of the teams. I've got the scores off. So I'm enjoying experiencing it real time. And I'm able to kind of see some of the themes. I think prior, it was hard for me to see, to catch all the highlights of all the games. Because uh, are they on YouTube? Are they here? Are they there? Which game is on Fox? Which game is not? Um, and it was very difficult. And so I wouldn't know maybe what's going on with Inter Miami until Dallas would play them. But now I can right. see some of the themes of, oh, they've got Gregor injured. They're trading some players. They're trying to build like this is what they're trying to do. And I can I can follow that narrative throughout the year. So I, I highly encourage people to get it. I really am enjoying it. And I'm excited to see um, how it continues to iterate over the year. Um, and by the way, every game is 1080p. That's now, right. For those of you who are not technical, all you need to know is that it looks spectacular Agreed. because it's uh, the the um, just the quality is fantastic. And, you know, it's not going through a cable provider or anything. It's just coming straight to us. Now, for someone like me that my pride and joy in my uh, family room is my 85 inch 8K television. <laughs> I, that is my toy. Right. Yeah. And watching MLS games, uh, by the way, watching the World Cup final on that thing was amazing. I bet. But uh, watching MLS games now in that quality, uh, the sharpness, uh, it's fantastic. And I also can 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 say unequivocally that both in English and Spanish, we have the greatest collection of of play-by-play -play announcers that the sport has ever seen, because basically MLS went out and hired the very, very best of the best and put them all together. So you're listening to incredibly talented voices, uh, both in both languages, and it's very enjoyable. And if you, you know, you know, I'm sure you've been watching MLS 360 and the yep. wrap-up show. The 360, basically, you're standing there and they're telling you what's going on with all the games. Uh, so say, for example, I finish watching the game I want to watch at 730. I'll then tune into MLS 360 and whatever the balance of the games are, I'm watching them all at once and they're giving, they're go, doing and cut ins into the different matches. I, th I think it's terrific. Yep. Anyhow, we got off topic. Here. No, back no, no, to, it's, it's good. I think it, it's helpful to, for folks to, to hear about sort of the evolution of um, TV and media rights and the deal and, and where they're at now. And it really is the ability to bring MLS to such a wide, uh, a wide variety of a wide what am I trying to say? An ever-expanding audience, ever-expanding audience across the globe. Um, and and for those fans who are tuning in and don't know about the Miami Fusion, that's why we've got this show, so you can educate yourself on what came before Inter Miami and the legacy there was. Um, now, I want to I wanna know 
What were some? Uh, you, <laughs> we're bouncing around some different timelines, but I, I, we're bouncing around stories, right? So I think at this point in the show, people may know and, and understand the familiar beats of the 98, 99, 2000, 2001 season. But what they're not getting is some of the these additional stories of what was going on behind the scenes uh, of these right. games. You were wearing a, a mascot costume at one particular time. So talk to me about <laughs> the, the Fusion's mascot. It was a lizard, uh, right? At some point, I don't remember if it was the end of the first season, the beginning of the second. I think it was towards the end of the first season, or maybe it was preseason. I, I just I don't remember. Sure. But all I do know is that we um, designed our mascot uh, called PK, and it was basically a gecko, a giant a gecko. Everybody thought it was an alligator. It wasn't. wasn't. It was Gerard PK. Giant. It wasn't just a giant Gerard PK. No. I'm... No, it wasn't a Gerard Piquet. It was called Piquet. It was cute as hell. Uh, the costume arrives in the mail. We haven't hired anyone to be in the costume yet. But um, I arranged for the mascot to debut on, back then it was a channel called Whammy, uh, which now has become, uh, since then, uh, a Spanish language channel. Back then it was an English language independent channel here in South Florida. Uh, and they had a midday show where they had local guys. So I'm like, we're going to debut the mascot. Problem was, we didn't hire anybody to have one. And we had to have somebody on that day. So just like Gabe, go get Valderrama, <laughs> Gabe gets into the costume. So the first ever person to be in the gecko costume and come out and entertain all that, it was me. <laughs> it, it was me, the PR director. You know, it's it's like I'm PR director. You know, one second I'm I'm talking to Michelle Kaufman about stories and the next I'm throwing on a costume and I'm entertaining you know, uh, <laughs> world in this gecko outfit. By the way, if you've ever put on one of those costumes, God, they smell bad. After it's one so use, bad. Oh, it's, it's, it's tough. I've, I've had a uh, costume nightmares for the past 25 years. All I can tell you is never give a mascot in full costume a ride unless there is contractual guarantees that that thing has been dry cleaned the day before because the odor of those things if you don't wash them is horrible that yes. sweat that stays in there and especially in the heat but i digress i uh, i i have worn that we had a local team here in the dallas worth area called the fort worth brahmas it was a hockey team and i wore that mascot i did community appearances for one year and it was not i thought they had one mascot for the guy that was on the ice doing the t-shirt cannon and all that and then i had a different one and i found out very quickly it was the same <laughs> because he wore it all game long and only took the head off in between periods and they didn't ever wash that thing and it was rank with a capital r it was bad <laughs> so yes i can only imagine that being in the heat as well like oh yes yeah. so psa to anybody that's listening if you've got a mascot costume please dry clean it air it out give someone you know yeah. a little bit of extra coin for having to wear that for sure um all right what was um you've got so Talk to me about uh, Pablo Mastroeni. I think I think there's so many incredible uh, players that came through the fusion that have had different roles in broadcasting, like Brian Dunsett, coaching like Pablo Mastroeni, um, you know, or just absolute MLS legends. President like and GM like President Mark Lagerway, head and, coach like yep. Kassar, head coaches like Jimmy Rooney uh, yep. on the national team. It is uh, Jay Heaps. Jay right, Heaps yes. Is now president of... Uh, USL team, you got Chris uh, Henderson, New England, uh, Tyrone Marshall, yep. Carlos Yamosa, uh, who's with Portland right now. Carlos yep. Yamosa, uh, Andy, 
there, there is just so many that have done so well. And it speaks to that 2020, 2021 team and the amount of talent and leadership that that one team had. It's unbelievable. But you asked me specifically about Pablo. Yeah. I will tell you this. I love the guy. Still love the guy. Um, I was honored that when him, so him and Leo Cullen were both drafted in the initial draft. They were both number one picks. Leo was the first pick. He was um, first fusion pick in the first round. He was picked as a defender. And then Pablo was brought in from North Carolina State as a forward. He wasn't a a defensive mid. He came in as a forward. Challenge was that, A, there was no space as a forward for him to play. But more importantly, because of the style of play of Valderrama, someone always had to run behind him to recuperate the ball. Yeah. Now, I remember the assistant coach at the time, um, I asked him, why did you move Pablo to defensive mid? And he said he has the same qualities as Argentina's Redondo. And to tell you the truth, to this day, and I watch a lot of soccer, I have rarely in my life seen someone um, who plays the defensive midfielder position better than Pablo Mastreni or can tackle a ball cleanly like he did. He would come in full force and where 99% of guys would get a yellow card because, or or at least a foul, Pablo would get the ball clean. And and this is a true story. I believed in Pablo so much that uh, back then, my friend Brian uh, was a PR person at the U.S. national team. And Pablo played so well at the Gold Cup that I bet Brian, Brian Chenault, I bet him that not only was Pablo going to make the World Cup team, but he was going to be a starter. And the bet was Pablo's World Cup jersey, one of his World Cup jerseys. And... Right now in my closet, I have a Pablo Mastroeni World Cup jersey hanging because I won that bet with Brian because uh, I knew he was that good. Yeah. And I got to see Pablo evolve. Um, you know, he came in, you know, basically a you know college kid haircut sort of thing. Yeah. And by the time we're done with four years, he started growing the dreads out, right? The famous dreads that, you know, yeah. he had as a player. But my favorite Pablo story, and I know in, in past episodes, you talked with John Trask about uh, going to Saginaw, Michigan. Yes. Like the mid-Michigan Bucks and the U.S. Open Cup. Yep. There's a very little known story about Pablo and I. Now, at the time, Ray Hudson was the coach. Uh, we had just played uh, a Sunday or Saturday night in uh, against the Metro Stars, and we're flying from Newark via, via Minnesota, to Saginaw, right? And as we're on the plane, the captain comes on and makes an announcement that we have to deplane because there's some sort of mechanical issue with the airplane. Now, I don't know what it was about it, but Pablo became uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. That's fair. It happens to me all the time. And he says, Gabe, there's something about this plane. I don't know. I got a feeling I'm not getting back on. I'm like, ah, Pablo, don't worry. They'll you know, these guys are pros, you know, we're going to go look for another flight. And sure enough, we stayed at the airport six hours. They were looking for other flights to put us in, but we're a big group of 30 people. Yeah. And don't forget back then we flew commercial. Right. Finally, um, Trask and group uh, managed to um, get us a flight, which was the same flight. So I don't forget which one of the coaches says to me, just don't tell Pablo anything because he had the weird feeling about this, this plane. So just in case. So we all board the flight. We're getting ready to go. 
and the captain comes on. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. We're mm. sorry about the technical delay. And Pablo looks at me and looks at Ray. We're all kind of sitting in the same area and says, is this the same plane? Is this the same plane? Forget it. Something about this plane. I'm not going. Picks up his bags, his uh, carry-on, walks off the plane. Oh, no. And Ray Hudson looks at me um, and it's like, Kib, what do I do? <laughs> and I'm like, coach, don't worry. Do me a favor. Grab my luggage and Pablo's luggage. I'll find a way to get us to Saginaw, Michigan. So we get off the plane and I explain to, you know, and, and that plane takes off. Yeah. And I explain to the gate agent that, look, one of our players just wasn't comfortable flying in a plane that had a mechanical, which, by the way, anybody listening might have that same feeling. Sure. Um, you know, because Pablo was was and is one of the most badass guys I have ever met. Um, so I'm like, don't worry, Pablo, I got you. So sure enough, they put us on a different flight which happened to leave right away via Detroit. So essentially, we're going to get there faster than the rest of the team because there was only two of us. Right. And um, basically, it became like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. We landed in Detroit. I rented a car. Neither one of us had been in Detroit, right? So it's like, what do we do? I don't know. Let's go to the main street. Let's go grab, uh, you know, I, I guess uh, I asked, where's the most famous pizza? So we went to the main <laughs> tourist area. And grabbed the slice of pizza. <laughs> then they were advertising these raspberry um, shakes at Burger King. We stopped by Burger King and we picked <laughs> up a shake, right? Uh, I forgot to mention we picked up a rental car. Um, and then, um, yeah, after just doing stuff around town, we finally drove two and a half hours or whatever that drive was. And we made it to Saginaw, Michigan at the same time that the club made it. And uh, it was it was it was literally Ferris Bueller's day off of soccer, yeah. you know, him and I in a car driving around town, having fun. Uh, and it was, it was one of my greatest memories and one of the many reasons why why I always love Pablo. Not only do I respect him as, in my opinion, one of the best defensive midfielders the game has ever seen. But what a guy, you know, and, yeah. and not only that, he learned how to play guitar. We're both fellow guitar players now. He has a family, and if Paolo's listening, I want to send him my best and congratulate him on the amazing work he's doing at RSL. Yes, he is doing that. And just to tie it back in, if folks want to watch the great work he's doing at RSL, they can get him on a season pass and then uh, tune in. So, yeah. But, yeah, that's a fantastic story. And then the fact that the game in and of itself was a back-and-forth affair with the Fusion and the Mich Mid-Michigan Bucks, a PDL team, right? Yeah, I went into PKs. Yes, yes. and Went into PKs. And here's an amateur team that we're supposed to roll over. And, by the way, literally, we're like, where the heck is Saginaw, Michigan? What is this? And here's this high school stadium, and we show up, and it's like sold out. You know, it's a ruckus crowd of yeah. five thousand, and they're going nuts. And they, you know, they they this was like their their you know their MLS Cup, their Super yeah. Bowl. They want to see the some World blood. They wanna, all rolled they're here for a cup one. set. Yeah, and yeah, our yeah, it was. Uh, I, I do have one more memory of that game that yeah. I never left Saginaw, Michigan, with the team because that milkshake didn't agree with me. oh no and 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 i'm, I'm not 100 if it's milkshake or not um uh but i will say that i ended up getting food poisoning Ooh. and and i wasn't able to fly out with the team so i actually had to lay in bed for two days till i got better oh no saginaw so just didn't want to let go uh, that's why i got to spend you know three four glorious nights in saginaw michigan <laughs> 
That's incredible. And that, you know, that's one of the things I love about the U.S. Open Cup is the ability to see those types of games and experiences where you do have some of a, a team from a, a Saginaw, Michigan, right, hosting an MLS team like a Miami Fusion and just like they're up for the game, right? They're here. They're like, we're yep. on the field, too. And and anything can happen in the in the confines of the cup. Um, I love it. So what was some of the you talked a bit about uh, Michelle Kaufman and, and she was working at the, I think still is working with the Miami Herald. Um, now, how, about, how, about, how about a shout out yes. to the incredible Michelle Kaufman, beat writer for the Miami Fusion. And here we are 25 years later. Uh, she hasn't missed the beat. She writes as, 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 as well as she ever did. And now covering the, uh, covering inner Miami uh, with incredible pace. She is um, a pit bull of a reporter when it comes to getting information and um, you know, a lot of people don't know she's married to the great um, uh, to the great uh, comedian humorist Dave Barry. Oh wow! Now you got to remember, back in 1998, email was rarely used. Right. Um, so if you wanted to pitch a story, there's two ways: you call somebody, or three ways: you call somebody, you send them a, a letter in the mail, or you fax it. Now I basically knew Michelle's weekly editorial calendar in the Herald. So I would basically drive her crazy every day to get coverage. That was my job. My job is sure. to get coverage, right? And and I'm proud to say that we were getting just as much, if not more, coverage for the Fusion than any team in Major League Soccer uh, at the time. So one day, I don't remember what day it was, but basically we didn't have a story that day, and she didn't have a column the next day. So I really had no reason to call her or text or anything else. So there I am in my office. It's 5, 5.30 in the afternoon. I get a phone call. Hello, Gabe Gabor? Yeah. This is Dave Barry. Now, I knew Dave Barry was her husband. Now, this is back then Dave Barry as in syndicated around the country, as right. in had his own TV show, Dave, as in famous dude, right? So I'm, I'm like, what's going on? I hope Michelle's okay. So hi, David. What's up? And David's like, hey, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. He said, I, Michelle and I thought maybe you were sick because we haven't gotten a call from you today and we haven't received the facts and this is not you. And that's how often I would pitch um, I would pitch <laughs> Miami Fusion stories and that's how close I was with Michelle. Not only that, for my birthday, Dave signed a book to me and the book said, to the only man who talks to my wife more than I do. <laughs> That was the inscription in the book, which I still have. Uh, over the years, we've become great friends. As a matter of fact, by the start of preseason 21, I left uh, MLS. I left the Fusion and went to work for the NBA. And uh, I would go to that 21 season. Basically, I had credentials, and I would sit in the outdoor press box with Dave, and we would watch uh, the games. And he it was literally him and I and I think Jeff Rusnak. And that's what we do. We'd watch the games together. And we suffered that last game against San Jose. Oh. None of us had a clue what was going on behind the scenes with contraction. Yeah. Uh, I just know that, you know, Troy Dyack scores that header. Yeah. And that's the end of the Miami Fusion franchise. And when I found out, it broke my heart. How could it be? Like, that was our life. You know, we, we loved it. We lived Miami Fusion every day. Here I was, an executive with the NBA. I was director of comms for um, U.S. Hispanic and Latin America. But my team, my heart is the Miami Fusion. And, and for us to think that we wouldn't have that anymore and we wouldn't have that for 21 more years in South Florida broke my heart. Yeah. 
You know, you talk yeah. about that 2001 season was just absolute, absolute magic. All the pieces came together. I want to know what was your perception of Ray becoming the head coach in 2000? You were still obviously with the team and working, but what was your just outside perception of him taking this gig, having not professionally coached previously? Well, uh, there's a couple of uh, there's a couple of layers to that story. Sure. First of all, uh, I felt a little bit like I was losing a friend, and it, it, he was the broadcaster. I was the PR guy. What does right. that mean? When we're on the road together, we spend most of our time together, meals, uh, room next to each other, uh, etc. Because you know the team does its own thing, and we're doing our own thing. You know the team is practicing on the road, and we're on the sideline kicking the ball around. And so I knew, because listen, anybody who's been around any sport knows that when you become a head coach, it's almost like you transcend to being a different human being. The pressures of winning and the pressures of being that front man sort of change you in a way. So I kind of felt when I, and, and by the way, the, the, the GM at the time, um, Doug Hamilton kept it very hush hush. So, and Doug and I talked about everything. So I was absolutely shocked when he said to me, prepare a press release. We're going to have a news conference to announce Ray. Um, I was very surprised that I, I wasn't in the know. Yeah. Um, and then I, I believe I got a little sad because I knew the Ray that was my Ray that I knew and loved was now becoming everybody else's Ray. Sure. And I knew that the Ray that, you know, we saw on TV and see on TV now would become a different Ray because of the pressures of the job. Yeah. And it was, and, and, you know, and um, so that was one of my feelings. Um, on the other hand, players loved Ray Hudson. Everybody loved and loves Ray Hudson. So, and, and we had good technical players and Eva Wardman, who was the, the Brazilian coach till that time, terrific coach, uh, terrific uh, tactician, all that. Um, but he wasn't maybe connecting with the players. Yeah. And you knew Ray right away would be rah, rah, let's connect. And basically he went out that first night and it was rah, rah, Ray, Ray, you know, and you know, he, he, then he comes out to do the post-game news conferences. And I think a lot of media still remembers that he threw some F-bombs <laughs> and, and everybody's like, it's a new world. It's, you know, it's, it's a new world to Ray Hudson. And we're probably not talking about the Miami fusion 25 years later, if Ray Hudson was not part of the history of the team, uh, both as a, as a, as a community leader, then as a broadcaster, then as a, as a head coach. I think you're absolutely right. Um, there was quite a few factors that made that, that when people think of the Miami fusion, they reference, they reference the, uh, the family aspect, the family dynamic, right. they reference the intimacy of Lockhart stadium and they reference Ray Hudson and his innate ability to gather everyone and sort of point them in the right direction and get them going. And and there's lots of other pieces. There's a lot of work that people put in to, to get the fusion to that point. I do agree that I think if it's not for Ray Hudson and it's not for that 2001 season, we're, not, we're probably not talking about the Miami fusion was such um, um, – such passion. a twinkle in our eye, right? Nostalgia. Yes, yeah, passion, exactly. Nostalgia. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's true. And, and, and I got to tell you, uh, a lot of the players that came in from around the league, especially in 2020, um, you know, Spanish speaking players, big stars for, for big teams would come up to me afterwards and be like, Gabriel, 
Traigame acá Miami. Bring me to Miami. Players, this is a place that players wanted to play because of the weather we have in the winter, because of that, you know, that compact stadium, which back then was original because from South Florida, you could fly to any country in, in the world, basically. Yeah. Uh, we're a hub, especially Latin America. So players wanted to come here and we were a family and, and there was a lot of love in the room. I'll, one, one other quick story. Uh, so on a Saturday afternoon, once a month, me and my buddies would go to Gulfstream racetrack. We would have lunch at this restaurant overlooking the track. And once in a while, we'd place a bet. I'm not a gambler at all, right? But once in a while, we'll place a bet. So I'm looking at the next race, and there's a horse called Qatar. Uh, sorry, Kassar. Kassar. A horse named Kassar. It wasn't spelled like Jeff Kassar, but it's a horse named Kassar. And I'm like, you got to bet on this horse. Right. So I didn't even, and usually I would bet like a dollar. That's what my gambling was. Un. I didn't look at the odds or anything. I just, you know, one of those people came around with the portable machines. Um, I think they had them back there. If not, it was one of the portable hubs that they had by the restaurant. I put 20 bucks on Kassar. I figured Kassar, our goalkeeper, lucky Kassar. Yeah. The horse wins. And it was like a 20 to one shot or 40 to one shot. And I walk out of lunch with a thousand bucks. <laughs> And I remember thanking Jeff afterwards. I'm like, yeah, uh, yeah, that, that was, uh, that was great. Thank you, Jeff. Yes. Uh, you know, he's listening. So thank you, Jeff, for my thousand bucks. Yes. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, you had told me the story about you, um, winning, or I would say, tell me about another, another situation <laughs> where you, you walked out of a situation with a little bit more coin than you thought you would have. So back in uh, 1998, before the big stock market crash, there was a big boom and everybody was investing in the stock market and no one knew what the hell you were doing. So during uh, in the morning, during breakfast, I would, you know, back then you couldn't check it on the computer. So I would open up the paper and see what the stocks were doing. And at lunch, if I wanted something, I'd call the broker because you couldn't do it on the computer right. back there or it was too soon. So it was uh, the birth of the Chinese stocks. And I saw one stock that went from like three cents to 10 cents in one day. Mm. I'm like, oh my God, somebody just made tons of money. Yeah. Right. So, but nobody knows about it. It's not like today where everything gets out on Twitter and everybody knows. Right. I should buy it. So I bought $1,000 worth of this 10 cent penny stock. Um, and it might have been, it went from, 30 cents to, to a dollar. So just, it could be that because sure. I don't want to misrepresent myself. So I bought a thousand dollars worth of $1 stock of this random Chinese company. I bought it during lunch. The next morning I opened the paper, the stock is worth 10 bucks. I made $10,000 overnight. Oh. <laughs> so I call my broker and sell it and cash in my $10,000. And I, and I got it, I went to the middle of our floor, sales floor, where everybody was, right? And I'm like, guys, I am taking everyone to lunch today. I had a big score in the stock market. And of course, not everybody, but a big chunk of the stuff, I think it was like 10 of us, went to this uh, Latin restaurant on Commercial Boulevard, and I treated everybody to lunch because I won $10,000. That's Months incredible. later, the stock market crashes. Yeah. I lose everything. Oof. You know who took me out to lunch? Nobody. <laughs> and I, I always remember that. It's like, come on, guys. 
<laughs> but yeah, I lost that as fast as I I earned it. But I, I remember taking the group out to lunch after I won. I was, you know, it was like a movie moment. That is just, there's so many, so many stories. I forgot to, you know, I want to, there's not really a great segue back into the Open Cup, but I did remember you mentioned, <laughs> I was trying to think of one. I'm like, there's not a good segue. So I'm just going to go, uh, speaking of lost things, the U.S. Open Cup. Oh, there we go. There's a good segue. Um, the The runner-up medal. You've got one. Not everyone does. How did that happen? Talk to me about the finals of the the 2000 U.S. Open Cup. Well, we're in Chicago at the old Soldier Field. Right. Big crowd. Uh, we really wanted to beat Chicago because they were our expansion brethren, yep. and they won MLS Cup in the first year. So we hated them. Right. That was that was kind of you know a rivalry, and we lose in the final to the Open Cup. Now at that time. Miami, it had been a long time since Miami had won any sort of professional championship. So, so I was pushing it as, hey, here's a chance, Miami, you know, to local media that yeah. there was a chance for Miami to win a championship. So it was getting buzz, but we also had a great team and the guys really believed that we can win. So when we lose, it starts out with the losers getting their medal and most of them wouldn't put it on. If you did, you took it off. So I don't remember what player it was. But I said to somebody, hey, you know, at least you got a medal. And I was like, eh, here. And he literally handed it to me. And little did they know that that would basically be the only hardware that the Miami Fusion would ever win in its history. Because I believe the Supporter Shield at that time didn't have uh, something that represented it. It was just a, sure. a, a word or it wasn't a ceremony. I don't know if it was. I've never seen it. I don't know where it lives. But right here in my office, I have got a second place medal from the 2000 U.S. Open Cup against uh, Chicago. And that was heartbreaking. Yeah. You, you wanted to win that, you know, you wanted to because uh, you, you felt if we could win this, then it would take us to a different level in the league and it would just help the business overall. Yeah. You know, something that I think has been truly exciting, at least from my perspective, as somebody who enjoyed the Open Cup, because. You know, I, I saw the 97 burn go on that run and win the U.S. Open Cup. And so I, I as a fan, thought this is the start of something and didn't realize it wouldn't be, wouldn't be until 2016 when there would be more silverware happening. Um, but I think what's been really great by uh, U.S. soccer and by CONCACAF and by MLS is to see the awarding of Champions League places allocated to the winners of the U.S. Open Cup. And, and so not only do you get hardware, not only do you get the prestige, but you get the ability to represent uh, America in, in the CONCACAF Champions League, um, which is huge. And then now you've got the expanded Club World Cup, and there's, there's a lot. There's, there's still something worth playing for, and there's the possibility of, of more. And I think, so when you look at, we're in the midst of the U.S. Open Cup is kicked off. It's you know, going to have the third round soon, um, as we're at the time of this recording. And you think about it, it seemed like a like a Michigan Bucks, right? And so now they're not only thinking about, oh, we could take down the MLS team, we could win the we could win the U.S. Open Cup. What sky's the limit, right? It's the it's the sort of idea of like you could make of this what you will on on any given day. So I, I really do and actually, love that. Sorry, Joe, uh, to interrupt. Actually, um, I'm going to put on my MLS hat once again. It's a little bit also of the allure of the new Leaks Cup that's starting in in August. That's because right. You know, for those of you who are not aware, basically Major League Soccer and League MX are both stopping their seasons for a month and playing a tournament where the winner not only gets a trophy, but gets a berth 
in the CONCACAF Champions League. And if you win that, then you go to the Club World Cup. That's right. Uh, and by the way, in the history of our sport, there's never been two leagues that have stopped to play to play each other. So I think um, I think it's going to be an instant hit. I think it's going to be a hit right away. I think we know from research that fans in the U.S. measure the quality of play in MLS against how we do against Mexican teams, yeah. both at the national team level and at the club level. And I think this will be an incredible opportunity to show how well um, MLS teams can do. And I think it'll be a great chance. Uh, for me personally, I love watching MLS compete against Mexican teams because it's it's something different. Yeah, just like I love U.S. Open Cup games, and as an employee, as a as an executive, I loved U.S. Open Cups because look, you've been to Foxborough a thousand times, you've been to Dallas a thousand times, you've been to New York a thousand times, you've been to LA a thousand times, but I get to go to Saginaw, Michigan, yes. or I get to go to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Yeah, and it's cool, even though you had to connect and take a smaller plane and this and that. It's cool. As a matter of fact, one quick story. I didn't even tell you about this one, Joe. Um, when we went to play Chattanooga in the U.S. Open Cup uh, that first year, we lost. We didn't do very well. And um, and there was no television, no radio of this game. So the only way that the owner is getting updates is he had me on the cell phone, call him every 15 minutes, Ken Horowitz, and tell him how we're doing in the game. And, you know, so he asked me, how are we doing? I'm like, sorry, boss, we're not looking so good. I think at the time we were down 2 nothing or something like that. We we gave away a couple soft calls and all that. And he goes, how's the team playing? I'm like, you know, so we're losing 2 nothing to Chattanooga. Right. It's, it's, it's not looking too good. And three days later, Cacho Cordova gets fired, our first head coach. And Cacho, I considered a friend. We're both Argentines and everything. And that day, I'm like, I said, I turned around and said to my girlfriend at the time, I'm like, or my wife, I turned around and I go, I got the coach fired. Oh, no. <laughs> I, if I didn't say anything about how bad we're playing, he'd still be here. And, uh, <laughs> you know, obviously, obviously the PR guy doesn't get the coach fired. But I felt, I felt, um, yeah, I felt really, really bad that I was the one that gave the coach, the, up, the owner, the update. And then three days later, the guy is... Uh, the it's guy's gone. fired. So again, this is like my apology tour. Again, uh, <laughs> Cacho, if you're listening, uh, it wasn't me. I was just relaying what was happening on the field. But I apologize that I didn't, you know, lie to Ken and tell him you guys are doing great because you were losing to nothing. Uh, I've seen him since, you know, a, a, a couple of times. And, you know, he was an Argentine legend, played for Boca and everything. Right. And uh, first coach I ever dealt with. So shout out to uh, Cacho and his assistants. Uh, that were so instrumental in that first year. You know the um, <laughs> got the coach fired. Um, the the uh, <laughs> uh, that's just wild, right? Like I'm just like oh, but <laughs> it's crazy. Um, as we're starting to wrap up, I want to ask you. Uh, Sorry, okay. Joe. That same that same yeah. game, I would do live cut-ins with our Spanish radio affiliate. Yeah. And I had actually, my career worked very little in Spanish. So I left Argentina at 10 years old. I started speaking English. My Spanish at the time was just starting to develop. Now it's obviously much better. It's 25 years later and I work in that world. But right. when I first started with the Fusion, I didn't. Then I was doing a radio interview and I believe Jeff Kassar, Scott Budnick, I don't remember which goalkeeper, but they left the game with an injury, uh, which was a cracked rib. Mm. Uh, but when I gave the report in Spanish, because my Spanish was so bad, 
I said by mistake that the goalkeeper had a cracked liver. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, what do you mean cracked liver? Are you sure? And I'm like, yes, a cracked liver. That's what I said in Spanish. And then they had to correct me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. But just, you know. <laughs> Live on, on radio, that's what happened. Well, you I, know, I, I think you probably felt like you had a cracked liver after after finding out about the, the correction because uh, I, did. I, I, I did. I did. Um, I, I, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, stuff that happens. The um, you know, It wasn't my worst mistake. One time we would do a game recap after every game. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we listed all the cards, the yellows and the reds, and someone got a yellow in our team for – uh, shirt pulling that was the official thing, mm-hmm. and I had a typo in the press release and send out something that said <laughs> yellow part for shit pulling. <laughs> it's you know, no one's nobody's perfect, and I certainly wasn't, and I'm still not. <laughs> uh, it happens. Oh uh, my goodness, it happens. The um, so with the 2001 season, you had taken the job with the NBA right be- right right before the season started. So you right. truly were experiencing the 2001 season fully as a fan, just going and yeah. experiencing the atmosphere. Um, I want to fast forward to we've talked quite a bit on this show about the magic of that season, and even on this episode, I want to fast forward a bit to the end when the news came down from the league that the team had been contracted. There was not going to be another team in uh, uh, the fusion weren't going to be around in 2002. Um, what was your, do you remember kind of where you were and what was going on at that particular time? And did you talk to anybody that you knew from the team after it came down? Yeah, I, um, I was, I was shocked. Obviously I, I had no idea what was happening because uh, that was already a few months out. Uh, no, I talked to a few folks. I, I spoke to Ray afterwards and, you know, he told me that he was going to move on. I spoke to Doug and I got a call even from the owner, Ken Horowitz, um, who him and I always had a great relationship. Shout out to Ken if he's listening. And he actually called me and and he was apologetic more than anything. I know how much the team meant to you. I couldn't do it. And, you know, I, uh, and um, th- this gives me an opportunity, Joe, to sort of uh, clear the air and maybe talk about the false narrative that the Miami Fusion was contracted because of lack of interest. That couldn't have been further from the truth. That last season, we're averaging uh, more than 11,000, which was very respectable at the time and nowhere near uh, the bottom of MLS uh, clubs. So that, that was not the reason why the team was contracted. And it wasn't because we weren't competitive. We were extremely competitive. Obviously, we're one game away from making MLS Cup. The, if you read, um, and I'm going to recommend the book to everyone, it's called uh, The United States of Soccer. But if you read the history of what happened, he goes, the writer, Phil, goes into a lot of details. Basically, it got to a point where there was, Don Garber had come in. And if you ask me um, what is the most important historical element that happened in the, in major league soccer, I would tell you two things, the arrival of David Beckham and the hiring of Don Garber. Don Garber comes in and he says two things. First of all, you can't continue bleeding money unless you invest more. And what does that mean? Well, firstly, it means building soccer specific stadiums and getting the team owned books, which was Dallas uh, and Miami off the books. Secondly, you have to have the World Cup in English on television. And back then, this was 2001, no network would buy the rights from FIFA in English to the World Cup. And Dan Garber said, that can't happen. We need to buy the rights, put it on TV, 
Otherwise, we'll fall apart. Yeah. Incidentally, nowadays, the U.S. pays more for World Cup rights than any other country in the world. But back in 2001, nobody wanted it, which shows the progression of soccer in, in, in as little as 23 years. So Don proposed, and I'm making a long story short, but Don proposes this to the owners, and the owners basically at one point vote to fold the league. And then come in the billionaire group, um, the, the Hunts, uh, the Anschutz, uh, the Crafts, uh, I believe Cronky too, and yeah. said, look, we don't want this to go away. We want this to continue. And basically it was a decision that these guys would buy everyone else out who are the multimillionaires. So there's multi-billionaires and multimillionaires, right? They would buy these other guys who did not want to continue investing in the league and they would have the option to buy the league-owned teams. Now, Dallas was bought out by the Hunts right. and they couldn't find a buyer for Miami, rightly or wrongly, they couldn't find. So that's why Miami ends up uh, being folded and, uh, and Tampa, there was no buyer for Tampa. So that's how Tampa... Uh, gets contracted. But it wasn't for lack of fan interest. Nothing against Florida. Uh, as a matter of fact, I would say that South Florida has had one of the greatest soccer legacies of any city in the United States. We've had continuous professional soccer in one form or another yep. since the Miami Toros days. Yes. So I continue to say that South Florida is one of the best soccer markets in the country. Um, it was at the beginning with the strikers and before that with the tours of the orange bowl, uh, it was starting to do terrific with the fusion. And like you said, at the beginning that we were playing in a makeshift stadium in Fort Lauderdale, we weren't offering what the other pro teams were offering or what even other MLS teams were offering. Cause the original plan was to play at the uh, orange bowl. Right. Um, but they pulled the rug from under us. And you ask at the beginning of your podcast, what would have happened if the Miami Fusion would have uh, been playing right now? And obviously, nobody, no one could predict. However, I would say that it would have thrived. It would have done great the following season with Ray. It would have reached a crescendo. I easily think the team could have won MLS Cup. I also think that with that success would have come the urge after Columbus to build a soccer-specific stadium, either at that facility, Columbus style, or somewhere in Miami. And I do think eventually the team would have moved to Miami. Yeah. Now, South Florida is a very interesting market. I believe to this day that you can have a team in Miami that does exceptionally well and sells out every week, and a team in North Broward, Palm Beach, that area where Lockhart is now, that does exceptionally well. And they would have incredible competition uh, with one another, much like um, the two teams in LA do. Yeah, I think the market right now as a soccer market is so strong, and I think eventually uh, that might have happened. But who knows? You know, yeah. we can only speculate. Um, but yeah, so so for anyone out there who says, "Ah, Miami was a bad market; it didn't do well," <laughs> it's bollocks. Miami was a great market. It has great soccer history. It has um, a, a, a unrivaled passion. That's why for the World Cup every year, it had the best ratings. Um, and I believe that. And I believe if you pull people like Michelle Kaufman um, or Ray or other people involved in, in soccer in this community, they will tell you that this is a golden community yes. for our sport. I think thank you for sharing that and for setting the record straight, because there's been so many uh, incorrect rumors throughout the years that it, it really does boil down. And, and yeah, there is um, 
Phil does an excellent job in that book, and you did an excellent job covering it as well. That It really came down to some hard decisions had to be made on the business end, and there were two choices, buy out or fold. And, you know, for the grace of those owners for deciding, no, we want this to live, we've got the the 29 teams and the Apple deal and, and the League's Cup and all these incredible things we've got today. And, and by the way, uh, the company Soccer United Marketing, which is yes. the commercial arm of Major League Soccer, was born as the company that bought the rights to the World Cup and then paid for time on ESPN for the World Cup to be. Then ESPN saw what a lucrative business it was, and then they ended up buying it. But that was the creation of Soccer United right. Marketing, which then transitioned into a company that, uh, that sold... Um, uh, one of the things that is uh, sold advertising in the digital soccer space, one of the first companies to sort of pull everything together and offer an, a, 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 an advertiser a chance, one-stop shop for advertising to the world of soccer. And then eventually it would own the commercial rights to the Mexican national team, something we still have to today. And um, tours like the Manchester United tour, the FC Barcelona tour, the Chivas tour, all that um was managed and is managed by Soccer United Marketing, which came from that same era. So what I would say is if 2001 didn't happen, if if the Miami Fusion and Tampa were not sacrificed, I'm not talking to you right now. Yeah. I don't know what you're, I, I'm not saying there wouldn't be professional soccer. I'm just saying it wouldn't be what it is uh, today. Right. So that's why I say there is no one um, more important to the history of Major League Soccer um, than Don Garber. And, you know, I'm not saying cause, cause I work with them on a regular basis. Right. But, uh, but when I see people like, you know, criticize on, on social media and by the way, it comes with the territory and it's sure. totally fine. I wish they knew him and what happens in the background as much as I know him. Sure. Uh, the guy is a once in a generation, uh, sports leader that I don't think we'll see for a very, very long time. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. We're going to wrap up and I have two questions, two final questions to ask you. And they're, they're pretty much just one large question. But number one is I want to know what does the legacy of the Miami fusion mean to you? And then what do you want brand new MLS fans who just got season pass or tune into Apple who have no idea of the fusion? What do you want them to know about the fusion? Um, I think the legacy of the Miami Fusion is the countless number of modern-day leaders that it brought together as young men and women and put them out there in the world uh, to become head coaches, general managers, presidents of teams, uh, TV talent at a national level and even league PR executives like me. It was, uh, it was the greatest leadership university in the history of the sport. Um, and our leaders were, you know, Leo Stoltano and Betty D'Angelo and the great Doug Hamilton um, and Ken Horowitz and John Stahl, the two owners, and guys like Ray Hudson and Eva Wardman and Cacho Cordova. And, and they put together a collection of people um, that I don't know if we'll ever see again. And, and all you have to do is see what those folks have been able to achieve. And there's so many people we're not talking about that are college coaches or national yes. team coaches or running youth clubs. You know, a guy like uh, 
Carlos Barra, right? Yes. He uh, he ran Western for a long time, and um, he's doing very well. Guys like Clay Coyman went on to lead an academy. Um, just other names that we're not naming that did so so well. Right. So yeah, the legacy, even you know, the MLS uh, Executive of the Year award is named after Doug Hamilton because he was in such a short time that he was around, he became such a such a valuable and incredible leader for our league. And I'm proud to say I was his uh, PR um, uh, executive. He was the guy that promoted me to VP. And you know, you know, if it wasn't for Doug Hamilton. And Ray Hudson, I'm never named PR executive of the year in 2000, which led to the NBA, which leads to my career now uh, with MLS and international soccer. Uh, The second question is, what do I want the casual fan to know? Um, I'm going to borrow another line from Ray Hudson. He probably doesn't even remember saying this to me, but he would always say that soccer is a religion and the stadium is like church. The only proper way to practice it is you got to go to the room where it happens. You got to be there. So it's great to watch on TV, but if you really want to see uh, La Familia, the four supporters groups go nuts and, you know, jump up and down with their flags and you want to feel the intensity of a game and you want to feel that passion, you got to head to the stadium. So if you haven't been to an inner Miami game or an MLS game in general on the country, go. I promise you, um, Miami, which people say it's a temporary stadium till they build their their um, their twenty five thousand seater next to the airport, it's really not a temporary venue. And if it is, it's the best in the world because it is legit. It yeah. has suites. It's beautiful. You're right next to the pitch. Uh, it's a great experience to go to the new Lockhart Stadium. Which, by the way, the old one that I talked about was leveled they actually changed the direction of the pitch and now what you got is a state-of-the-art venue that even though they call it temporary it's not it will stay there um for the lower divisions and for international competition they play gold cup there you know the national team's been there um so go visit that stadium and if you're in other cities around the country go support your local mls team that's the beauty about soccer you can wake up saturday morning watch your favorite epl team or on Sunday, watch your favorite Argentine team. I'm an, I'm an Independiente fan. You could watch those guys on TV. But if you have a team in your backyard, you know, and like Jorge Ramos, the great ESPN commentator, says, um, you're not a fan. You're just a consumer of these teams out of town. Yes. A fan is what you can actually pick up with your kids, your spouse, whatever. And you go to the stadium and you cheer. Yes. And so I'm inviting you to be a fan of Major League Soccer and its teams. And if you're in St. Louis and you haven't been to that amazing oh. new Stadium, which, by the way, has 60,000 season ticket deposits in a stadium that fits barely, you know, I think it's uh, 21, 22. It's amazing if you haven't been to Austin. It's amazing if you haven't been to Cincinnati. That stadium is absolutely 5.0. If you haven't been to the new Columbus Stadium, think about it. The first ever stadium made for Sagra specifically, 1999 Columbus, that's already past what you know, is uh, feasible for an MLS franchise. And now they have a brand new downtown stadium. If you haven't been to LAFC or if you haven't been to a game with 75,000 fans at Mercedes-Benz Stadium, you know, because of the number of games we play, Atlanta United is the number one tenant in that stadium. 
And they're incredibly culturally relevant in that market. And because of the job that I have with communications at MLS, I have gotten to go to all these places and experience what MLS is today. So don't miss out. You know, despite 25 years, we're still at the infancy of um, of Major League Soccer. And you still got a chance to be there right at the beginning uh, as the train is taken off. And it, I, I couldn't be prouder to work for the league. I couldn't be prouder of my history with... Uh, with the Miami Fusion and my friendship with everyone at uh, Inner Miami. And um, I can't wait to hear the rest of your uh, podcast and what other incredible stories you're going to bring to the table. And thanks on behalf of, um, of all Miami Fusion uh, fans uh, for this nostalgia and this show that you've brought to us. Of course. Thank you, Gabe, for sharing your stories with us today. I appreciate it. 25 for 25 is a Detox Podcast production. Music production provided by KCWM on Spotify and YouTube. Recording, editing, post-production, and hosting has been completed by me, Joe Shaw. If you would like to follow along with this podcast, you can subscribe to it directly wherever you get your podcasts or by subscribing to the Detox Podcast feed. For more information about this and other Detox-produced podcasts, be sure to go to detoxpodcast.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast.com. And a special thanks to all those who took the time to share their story with me. If you want to continue to support this podcast, please share it with a friend and rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to it currently. Though Miami fans nowadays are decked in pink, I'll always bleed blue and yellow. Hashtag Fusion Forever.